0: So great to see everyone this Sunday morning. Welcome home family. Thank you worship team for leading us in song and in praise. Uh, even in the mixed te- technical difficulties, you guys still do a great job. So thank you for that. Well it is finally here. We are ending our series in the book of Exodus. If you've been with us, We've been in the book of Exodus for seven months now. We started in January, and yes, my math checks out. It is July, and so we are finishing the book of Exodus after seven months. We're going to be in chapter 40 here in a bit. So if you want to open up your Bibles and go there before, that's okay. That's good. It'll be on the screen when we get there in a minute. And so hopefully this has been a good, good journey as we have walked through the storyline of the book of Exodus and seen how God works then and also how God continues to work now. And so before we dive into this last bit and bring to close the series, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. Thank you for all that you do and continue to do. Thank you for your word that we can read it and know you and, and see how you work in history but also in our own lives. Lord, we just pray for this time and we we pray as we open up this word, your word, that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, that we can see the importance of it. We can see what it points to. We can see you in your glory and be forever changed. Lord, we thank you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of Exodus, many of us know it. Maybe if you've been here, you've heard it before. If you've read the book of Exodus, you've seen it. This is a story of God's people, and, and if you look on the front of your bulletin, if you look on the, the thing that's on in front of our church, you see it. It says, God saves. That's the overall theme of Exodus, that God saves his people. And we've seen this played out in the story again and again. And when you think about the story of Exodus, you think about how God is continually saving his people. So in Exodus, when we, when we open up, we find Israel, God's people, in captivity. They had journeyed into Egypt because of a famine in Canaan. And so now they are in Egypt, and the people, have, the Pharaoh had forgotten Joseph. And so now they're starting to enslave the people of, of, of Israel, putting more work upon them. The people are crying out to God, and God responds by sending a Savior. He sends Moses to lead them out. And God meets with Moses in the desert. He prepares him in the burning bush. He gives them these signs to show Pharaoh. And so Moses calls his brother Abraham and they go together. I'm Abraham, Aaron. And they go and they meet with Pharaoh and they declare God has declared his people to be set free. And then God works these powerful wonders upon the land of Egypt, these ten plagues, proving that he is the only God. That no matter where the Egyptians were looking, they could not find any hope because he was God and he was God alone. And Pharaoh finally relented, set the people out, the people left, and the Pharaoh changed his mind to so his army. Him, and now the people of God are found themselves between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army and the despairing of hope. They're like, hey, God, you freed us, but now we're going to die out here in the wilderness. It would have been better if we died as slaves. And yet God still responds and saves his people yet again as he commands Moses to lift his staff and the waters split and Israel passes through the Red Sea as on dry land and then causes the water to sweep away Pharaoh's army. And so now the people of God find themselves in the wilderness. And they find themselves in the wilderness away from civilization with nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and they begin again to complain. And so God provides them water First by making a bitter stream sweet, then by providing water from a rock. Then he provides them food, manna in the morning. They just had to get up and gather this bread-like dew substance, and they would have food every day. Then quail in the evening, because it's not just bread, but meat. Every evening quail would fly into the camp, and they could gather as much as they want. And God provided and once again saved his people. And he brought them to Mount Sinai, which is where he meets with Moses, his God's glory descends upon this mount is trembling, trumpet sounding, and Moses goes up and talks to God and he receives the Ten Commandments, he gives those to the people, he receives the law code, he gives us to the people, he goes back up and he receives the instructions for building the tabernacle of how God would now be with his people as they surround him and they would journey together as God's people and he as their God. And then, of course, we've got that whole instance why Moses is up there 40 days receiving the instructions for the tabernacle. The people of Israel are getting a little crazy and start building a golden calf and start worshiping an idol thinking, hey, Moses has been gone too long. Let's go this way. And Moses comes down and he destroys the idol. He intercedes on their behalf before God saying, have pity on them, have mercy on them for your own name's sake? So God does. And God says, I will now journey with you. And so Moses goes back up again and talks with God and then he comes back and people gather together all of their provisions, all of what they have, they contribute to say, hey, now let's build this tabernacle, the instructions that we have and let's let's build this so that God will be with us always as we journey through the wilderness. And that's where we ended last week. And as the chapter, as the book of Exodus is coming to the close, the last uh, few chapters are all just basically a repeat, kind of, of chapters 26 through 30 of the instructions on building a tabernacle. Now, those, those instructions are they did it, they start building the tabernacle. They gathered the supplies as we talked about last week, and now they're building it and they're setting up. And now in, uh, in chapter 40, as we pick up the story at the close, what we see happening is the tabernacle's elements are built, and now Moses is going to erect them and we see what happens at the end. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in Exodus chapter 40 as we read the close of this book. And it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying on the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up the lamps and you shall put uh, the golden altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the temple. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court and all around and hang up the screen for the court gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all of its furniture so that you may become, so it may become holy. And you shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may, may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin as a stand and consecrate it, and then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him and he may serve me as a priest, that he may serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall omit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its base, he set up his frame and put in his poles and raised up his pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the, into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the, on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the stream screen and streamed the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table in the south side of the tabernacle and set the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burnt fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses." And he put in place a screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses." And he erected the court around the tabernacle on the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What are we supposed to take from this conclusion of the book of Exodus? It's about the tabernacle. And what it means for not just them, but for us. Well, it's interesting that From such a low, the book of Exodus starts on, Israel enslaved. Now it starts on, it ends on this really big high. God is with his people, his presence has descended. He's with us. But what are we supposed to take from this? Because we don't have the tabernacle now. Well, guess what? We have something far better than the tabernacle, and that is Jesus Christ. For what the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ fulfills. That's what we see when we read the New Testament, when we read the Bible, we see it all kind of building up and pointing to this fact that how God interacts with his people is foreshadowing how Christ would fulfill him being with his people. How he fulfill all these things that we see in Exodus, how he fulfills all these things we see in the Old Testament, he fulfills those as he brings salvation to us, as God sends his son. So when the ta- what the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ. For, for, uh, fulfilled. fulfilled. Sorry, I can't speak right now. This was really, when reading the story of how God relates to his people in Exodus was just a foreshadow of how he would relate and save his people through his son. I love how John Owen, who is an English uh, Puritan, he said this, everything Moses did in erecting the tabernacle and instituting all of its services was intended to testify to the person And glory of Christ, which would later be revealed. This fact that all this—why do we have this in our Bible? Why do we read it? Why do we have so many pages about how God is going to relate to His people? Because it always—it all foreshadows and points to something better, and that is Christ, who we have. And so that's what we're going to look at: how all of this points to something better. Who is Christ? I'm not, I mean, this is not new. It shouldn't be new. We just read the book of Hebrews, which I'm going to be looking at a lot, and it talks about, the, writer of, the author of Hebrews points to this fact that Christ is the better Moses, that Christ is the better tabernacle, that Christ is the better covenant, that Christ is better. He is what we look towards for our only hope as we look towards Christ. that what the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ fulfills. Let's just talk about the tabernacle in its, in its whole kind of structure. We just read about it. This is, is this mean place where it would be centered in the, in the middle of the camp. The tribes would be circled around it. It's where they would meet with God. His presence would be. At, at the end of the chapter, we see it's where the cloud would settle during the day and the fire at night. And then when he wanted, when God wanted them to start moving, he would pick up his presence and will lead them. And they would pick up the tabernacle and they would follow him. And so the tabernacle is a place where God meets with his people. It's where God is with his people. And it's this structure, these barriers, these walls, that they had to enter through the, uh, a gate and they had to enter, and the first thing they entered into would we see this big, huge altar where burnt offerings, sacrificial offerings were offered would be offered because they could only enter into God's presence through those offerings. And that would be administered by a priest. Someone had to be mediating them. Between them and God. And then they would see the water of Bashan, where they had to wash to purify themselves to even enter into the the holy, uh, the the tent of meeting, where there would be the bread of presence with the bread laid on the table. There'll be a lampstand shading light on it, there'll be the altar of incense being burnt for God. And then there's a rebel separating that even from the most holy of holies. And in that only the high priest could enter but once a year on the day of atonement when he went to offer a blood sacrifice to offer atonement for the people of God. And they're at the, at the foot of the Ark of the Covenant with the, the mercy seat upon it. That's the tabernacle. When we look at that we see how God was with his people but it was limited. It was at a certain time, a certain place. There's barriers in place. It still had these kind of filters between them and God. But it's interesting when Jesus came to us, he came to eradicate and move those barriers where we could have a relationship with God through the one and only true mediator, Jesus Christ. That he is actually the true tabernacle where God's presence is, made known among his people. We see that when we read the gospel of John. In John 1-4, when it talks about how Jesus took on flesh and came down, actually the wording there is that he came down and tabernacled among the people. He set up an earthly tent, his flesh, to be with people. But he did it superior than this. the tabernacle is here there. He did it in a way where people could know God through him and have a relationship with God through him forever. The barriers were knocked down That what the tabernacle foreshadowed Christ fulfills. But then, not just the structure, but as I mentioned, that altar, when you walked into the, tab- the, the tabernacle, the first thing you had to walk by was this huge bronze altar, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, you know, about four feet high, four and a half feet high, this huge bronze altar where the priests would, would would uh, do all their sacrifices with all the sin offerings, the, the praise offerings, all these offerings that we read in the law code that were offered would be done there. And that's how, as a continual reminder, as when you approach the presence of God as an Israelite, you had to approach it through the offerings given, the sacrifices given. The relationship could only be done through that. But when we read the New Testament, we see again and again this fact. While it's true that there's forgiveness only through the shedding of blood, like Hebrews 9.22 says, we see this fact that God, that Christ, came and offered a sacrifice once for all. That's no longer a perpetual system where you had to enter through a sacrifice. We now have the way open because we have the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That again and again the New Testament clears this. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he is the propitiation for, God's, for, for our, our, our salvation. That he has saved us. We read passage after passage about this fact. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice of atonement. He took away God's wrath. He brought down the barriers. He provided access for us to be with God. We see this again and again that this is who Christ is. That this altar points to Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice that allows us to know God and Him to be our God. That what the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ fulfills. And these sacrifices were done by these priests. Aaron and his lineage became the priests in pre- 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 oh man, 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 <laughs> forever, as they listened. And uh, they, they, they had uh, when we were talking about the tabernacle and building it. These priestly garments they had, that they were consecrated. The garments and themselves were consecrated. They were kind of given over to the Lord to serve as these mediators, these interceders. They were to speak to God on the behalf of the people through performing these sacrifices. They were the ones sprinkling the blood upon the people and upon the altar, showing how the people were being made right to be entered into, enter into God's presence. The amazing thing about Jesus is he's not, he's not only the once and for all sacrifice, but he is the once and for all priest who gives the sacrifice of himself to God. For his people, that Jesus is our great high priest. You read the book of, of Hebrews, and you see this again and again that he is the high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest, as Roman as Hebrews uh, two seventeen says, and uh, Hebrews uh, nine eleven says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, but talking about Jesus himself there. he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That Jesus is not just a once and for all sacrifice, he is the great high priest who offers himself, who provides the way to be with God for eternal redemption. What What the tabernacle foreshadowed Christ fulfills. Then we enter into the tabernacle itself. And we enter into And what is in there is is a table uh, of the bread of the presence. On this table there were 12 loaves of bread pointing to God's provision. It's to remind the people of the manna given in the wilderness. It's to remind the people that God always provides. That he provides for all of his people. And when you look at that, it's funny how Jesus takes that image of bread himself in John 6 and he points to who he is. And that he even points to the instance of manna coming down and he talks to the people of of Israel and says, you, your forefathers, got bread from heaven and it provided for them. But he says, I am the true bread of life. Whoever eats of me will have eternal life. He points to this fact that he is the provider. He provides for people life in and of himself. That he fulfills this. He provides what they need. Kind of in, 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 in a way, this, even before he instituted the Lord's Supper, when you read John 6, you can't help but see how it kind of connects to what we just celebrated as a church. That when we remember who He is, the bread of life, and when we partake of the Lord's Supper that He gave us to remember how He saves us, that we are truly feeding upon Christ and the salvation He's given us. And it's only through Him that we have salvation and we remember how He is the true bread of life that provides eternal life for what the tabernacle foreshadowed Christ fulfills. Inside the tabernacle... kind of opposite the bread of the presence was the lampstand. This, this lamp that was supposed to be provided with this uh, particular oil to burn, always be burning to shed light upon the bread and to shed light upon the altar of incense. And we see this as a golden lampstand, probably weighing around 75 pounds. It looked like a tree, kind of had all these branches and it kind of branched up into these, uh, these uh, different kind of almond blossoms at the top and at the top it kind of branched on to, these, to the, the lamp itself, Right? And at the top, it probably looked like what we would call a menorah. Uh, if you ever seen, uh, had a Jewish friend that celebrated, you know, uh, Hanukkah or something, they light the menorah. And it was branched out like this. But it was to symbolize God's presence. Because again and again, we see throughout the whole scriptures that light is symbolizing God's presence. Where, where light is, darkness cannot hide. Where God is, we see light, this glorious light. When his presence comes down, it's this glorious light shining out through a cloud or shining a fire through the night, and we see God's presence shining upon people. And so this lamp was supposed to signify God's presence with his people. But again, what this foreshadows, Christ fulfills. For how does John speak of Jesus when he comes down to us, when he's born at the beginning of John's gospel? In John 1, uh, chapter 1, what does he say? He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. This fact that Jesus is the true light of God, the true presence of God, shining upon the world so that people could see him and see God through him. That what the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ fulfills. And then, of course, we have the veil, separating the most holies of holies from everything else, and inside that spot was the Ark of the Covenant, this Ark of the the Testimony, uh, this this, this ark where the mercy seat was where the presence of God would actually come down and commune with Moses and commune with the high priest. And you see this fact that this is the, the kind of the center of the tabernacle, the center of the Israelites' uh, kind of worship. And we see God being with his people. But again, it was separated by a bell. Only one person could enter it. But what happens when Jesus comes and lives the life we could not live righteous before God and goes to the death that we deserve? What happens when he is crucified upon that cross in the temple, which the tabernacle foreshadows and becomes the temple, that veil separating the holies of holies from the rest is torn from top to bottom. That when Jesus gave his life for us, he knocked down that barrier says I am with my people but people can know God through me and he provides that sacrifice once and for all well before only the high priest could go in there once a year on the day of atonement and he would sacrifice the bull, he would sacrifice the goat, and he would sprinkle with his fingers the blood of these animals upon the Ark of the Covenant, kind of making atonement for the people for sins. Jesus on the cross provided the final once and for all sacrifice of atonement where the veil was torn, the blood was shed, and now people could be with God and God could be with his people perfectly through Jesus as the Holy Spirit and dwells in us. That what the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ fulfills. And then finally, I love how this book ends. Ends on such a high note. God's presence comes down to the tabernacle. They erect it. They've done what it all is. I just love the refrain again and again that Moses did all that God commanded him to do. And when you read the last few chapters of Exodus, you get that refrain from all the people. They did all that God had commanded to do. And so it's this kind of high point. We've done it. We've built the tabernacle and God's presence comes and dwells among the people. It came down as we want to lead the people now into the promised land. What a great promise. What a great thing that is that they could now look toward the center of their camp, and always see and always know God is with them. But what that foreshadows, Christ fulfills. For when Christ came down, he brought in a relationship that anyone and everyone who believes in him could be with him forever forever that he would never forsake him, that he would never leave him, that he would never abandon us, that now even though he has ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us moment by moment, he sent the Holy Spirit that now dwells in us and unites us with our risen Savior. And so we never have to feel abandoned because we're not abandoned. We're not alone. He's always with us, always. Never leaving us, being personal and communing with us. We see this again and again, this glorious fact about how God loves us and is with us. One of my favorite verses is Romans 8, uh, verses 38 and 39, talking about how sure we can be of God's love through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we will never be separated from Jesus because he is there, he is here with us always. What the tabernacle foreshadowed, Christ fulfills. What does that mean for us when we think about this, when we finish the book of Exodus, and what does this mean? Well, we can sum it up by it it all points to Christ. That's the easy way to do it. But it also means that it should drive us to a place of worship. That if we know Jesus Christ, if we know him as our Savior, and this is true, and we can read this and see how glorious it is that God met with his people through the tabernacle, but we know we have something so much better, shouldn't that drive us to worship what we have, shouldn't that drive us to appreciate and worship this mighty, saving Christ we have and know? Again, John Owen, he puts it like this. He says, by beholding the glory of Christ, we shall experience what it means to be everlasting blessed. We shall always be with the Lord. We shall be with Christ, which is the best of all. For there we shall behold his glory, and by seeing him as he is, we shall be made like him. This is our everlasting blessedness. It drives us to a place of worship that we appreciate. And we are in awe and wonder of our mighty God who sent such a wonderful Savior to bring us to him. So let's worship. Let's let's read this and let it drive our appreciation for our Savior. Let us understand so much more about what it means that he's our savior and all the things that point to him and show the significance of what he achieved for us. But this also should drive us to communion with God the Father. Because this is reminding us of what the great privilege that we have The the Israelites had to gather around. Only a certain people could go in, and and, and they were limited. They had barriers between them and God. But we, because of Jesus Christ, are ushered into the throne room of grace. And so that should drive us to commune with God, that we shouldn't be hesitant to pray. We shouldn't be hesitant to think that somehow he's not going to respond to us. That should move us to know this amazing God. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says this, Therefore, brothers... that when we think about the tabernacle and how it only foreshadowed what Christ did and how he fulfilled all these things, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey guys, if this is true, let's approach God confidently because we are washed with the blood of Christ. And so now we know we can actually speak to the Father Almighty and he listens to us. That we are actually ushered by Christ into his throne room and we can commune with the Father means let's not be hesitant to pray. For when we pray, we're not just saying words that bounce off the ceiling. That when we pray, we're actually communing with the Almighty of the universe. And he listens to us. He cares about us. He responds to us. That we know because of Christ, as we stand in him, that when we pray, he looks upon our prayers as if they're being spoken by Christ. Himself. And He responds to us. So let us pray. Let us seek and let us be driven to communion with the Father. Then finally, in this world that sometimes doesn't make sense, in this world where hardships hit us again and again, where it's things that don't seem to work out, when we see the tabernacle pointing to Christ, we actually see it pointing to that blessed future that awaits all of us. So let's fix our eyes on when Christ will come again. For when we fix our eyes on the blessed hope of who Jesus Christ is, we don't just fix our eyes on what he has done. We don't even just fix our eyes on where he is now. We fix our eyes on the fact that he is coming again. And we cherish that and we hope in that. Why? For as we see in the Bible, again and again, when he comes, he'll set all the wrongs right. He'll wipe away every tear. He'll make everything as it should be. All the pain we experience or the hardships we've gone through, he'll make them what they're supposed to be and make them right. And we wait for that blessed hope. We wait for him to come again and be our God and us his people perfectly forever so when we read Exodus and we come to this conclusion let us drive, to, let it drive us to worship Christ let us push us to have communion with the Father but let us lift our eyes to what awaits us and let's live in light of that glorious future join me in prayer dear, dear Heavenly Father thank you so much for your word that we can read it, we can know it, we can respond to it. Lord, I just pray for this time as we have gone through this book, I just pray that it's beneficial for all of us to know You through Your Word, that we can grow through it, that we can be pushed and expanded as we see how You've worked throughout history and how You're still working in the same ways. And Lord, I just ask for each one of us that we can be encouraged by this, that maybe it pushes us or drives us into a greater communion, a greater devotion of knowing you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone who does not know or is on the fence about the truth of who Jesus is. And I just pray that as they see how Christ fulfills all of what Exodus points to, they can truly see the glory of you and respond to it. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Y'all feel free to join us uh, and stand in worship for this last song.